If you're a note taker, you can write this message title down, Easter changes everything. Everybody shout everything. everything. Now, I think when you hear that phrase, some of you can be like, oh, that's church talk, right? Easter changes everything. Really? Come on, pastor. Everything like sounds like hype or it sounds like Easter talk um, or church talk. But I, I want to propose that you've had moments in your life, whether you believe in God, maybe you're here and someone, you, out of your kindness to a friend, you decided to show up and, and you're like, I don't even know if I believe in God. You've had experiences that have changed everything. And uh, there's some go-to ones in most people's life, right? If you're married, that was a day that hopefully changed everything, right? Like we're hoping that, right? Um, the birth of a child. I remember when my son was born, like I was like, I didn't know I had this kind of love in me. Our first, oh, and he's 16. And uh, I was, I held him for the first time. I'll never forget that. And I thought, man, this is, this change, this is going to change my life. I knew at that moment, my life was changed. And then our second, my daughter, Faith, um, the second of the four, when I held her, I was like, now I know what it means that I'll go to jail. I feel, I have that feeling like I will murder someone. <laughs> if they hurt my daughter. Come on, dads, any dad, okay. Um, I knew that. I, I was like, that's why I have a gun safe now, didn't have one before. And so, um, so um, it changed everything, but you've all had these experiences. It, it was, and, and, and you can, you, some of it's that moment you look back and you're like, I was never the same after that. I didn't see things the same. I didn't think the same. I didn't experience things the same. And it may be something that's funny, um, but it could be something that's painful in your life. And, and you go back to that moment and you were like, that stole something from me. It robbed some innocence from me. And I've never been the same since that moment. And so we all have moments in life because life happens that change everything. And I would propose to you today, and what I want to show you today is that Easter has the power to change everything in your life. Easter did change everything. That's not up for debate. If you think of it from a macro scale, Easter changed history. History was forever changed around this event called Easter, this resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. It changed everything. It not only changed history, but it changed time. I mean, we calendar civilization around BC and AD, around this death and burial and resurrection of this man, Jesus. It forever changed time. It changed civilizations. But more importantly than that, it changed people. Easter has, for thousands of years now, been changing people. Billions of people around the globe will gather this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ because Easter changes individuals, changes people. Throughout the Bible and throughout time and history, we've seen that Easter, the power of the resurrection, makes weak people strong, makes prideful people humble. It makes dictators benevolent. It changes People, it makes broken people healed because this event, it's more than a historical event, has the ability to change everything for people and it has the ability to change everything for us. And so I want to talk to you about three people in the scripture that it changed everything for. There's many more than that, there's hundreds, thousands, and now billions of people. But there's three people I want us to look at in the Gospel of John. John was one of the disciples of Jesus. He has a book in the New Testament. That's the second half of your Bible. The first four are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so John is the writer of the one we're going to look at today. And I want to catch you up to speed. So if you're with me, say amen. If you're visiting, you can talk back. This is a talkback church, all right? We like a little talkback here little interaction. We think church ought to be fun. I grew up in a church where I thought everybody had eaten lemons. And I was like, if Jesus makes you look that mad, I don't want him. I just don't think it should be that way. 
they would sing, I have joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I was like, tell your face. Because your face hasn't figured that out yet. And so, anyways. So post-resurrection, pre-ascension. Are you tracking with me? There are a 40-day gap in there. Jesus has come up out of the grave. He's risen from the dead, but he hasn't yet ascended to the Father to sit at the right hand of God the Father and forever intercede. He's right now praying for you. Isn't that a powerful thought? Jesus is praying for you. And so in that 40 day, Jesus makes 11 appearances or shows up in 11 people or groups of people's life. Now over those 40 days, he makes 11 appearances and it culminates in over 500 people. So he made his appearance to 500 people. And so my faith isn't in Jesus because of some feeling. It's because there was eyewitness account that he resurrected from the dead. And I don't know about you, but I'm going with the guy that got up out of the grave. It wasn't mass hallucination. Are you following me? It wasn't mass hallucination. It wasn't mass intoxication. It was 500 people that watched the cross and then encountered the risen Savior. Now, there really is a 12th, if you want to be technical, for all the theologians in the room, because he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. But I'm talking about the 40 days between post-resurrection, pre-ascension. Are you following me? So if he only appears to 11 people slash groups of individuals, you would think that these 11 are pretty important, wouldn't you? And John records three of them. In John 20 and 21, he records three of them that I want to show you. There's actually a fourth group, but I want to show you three of them that he records. And I would think that they're pretty important. And I think they represent where you and I can find ourselves maybe even on this resurrection Sunday. Now, the first one that he appears to is a lady called Mary, Mary Magdalene. And I'll tell you a little bit more about her. And it's in John chapter 20, verse 11. And since last Easter, I have aged a year of people. So I need these to see the scripture. Verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. So where his body would have been laid, one angel at one end, one at the other end. And then they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away. That's important. She said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, please tell me where you put him and I will go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. I wonder how many times as a follower of Jesus, she heard his intonation on the way that he said her name. And in that moment, she recognized his voice and she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. We may say it like this, rabbi. And so the first person I want us to look at is Mary Magdalene. You need a little bit of Mary's story. Mary, um, when she first encountered Jesus, was a woman that was possessed with demons. And it's not meant to freak you out. I'm not a pastor that thinks there's a devil under every rock. I don't fall up the stairs and be like, well, the devil made me do it. Maybe I need new shoes or maybe I'm clumsy. <laughs> But John 10 does teach us that there is an enemy of your soul and he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. 
And so make no bones about it, you do have an enemy of your soul that wants nothing but to kill, to distill, and to destroy your life. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. Now when Jesus encountered Mary, she was possessed by demons and he cast those demons out of her and gave her freedom. I wanna first say to you today that Jesus didn't come die on a cross and rise from the grave just to give you a ticket to heaven. He came to give you freedom in the here and now because my Bible says, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. There was some uh, prisoners that escaped from a New York prison several years ago, you may remember this, and uh, they were on the run and all of these agencies were trying to track them down and find them. The men were free. They were out of prison. They were no longer told when to sleep, when to get up, when to eat, what to wear. Are y'all following me? They were free, but they were forever looking over their shoulder, afraid that their past would catch up to their present and affect their future. Jesus doesn't come to just give you some freedom worrying about if your past will ever catch up to your present. He says, no, the difference between free and free indeed is whenever I'm free indeed, I don't worry if my past shame, my past sin, my past mistakes, my past guilt will ever show up in my present and affect my future. And so he set her free. And so you can imagine how Mary was endeared to Jesus. You can imagine the affection that she had for Jesus. Her life had been radically transformed by this man named Jesus. And now he is dead and the grave is empty. Now I think we like to paint biblical characters as like these superheroes of faith, but they are not. They're humans like you and me, and they experience life like you and I. And so that morning, whenever Mary showed up to the tomb, if you read John chapter 20, verse one through eight, you find out she went to the tomb and she saw that it was empty. And she went back to tell Simon and Peter and the other disciples that the tomb is empty, but she didn't come back saying, guess what? What he said is true. He's resurrected. She goes, somebody's taken the body. And the Bible says that they went back to the tomb. Matter of fact, John kind of, it's really funny to me, it's humorous. John, the writer of the book of John, who is called John the Beloved in the text says that Peter and the one Jesus loved ran to the tomb. So he's like, Peter and me, the one Jesus loved. And then he writes, they ran to the tomb and the one Jesus loved outran Peter. It's no joke, go read it. So John is writing, I'm faster than Peter. And then he says again, and the one, and then Peter finally arrived. It's just like, Peter, I want you to know you're slow, bro. And I'm going to put this in the Bible. And so Mary comes back with them and this is where she encounters Jesus and she's at the grave and she is not full of faith. She is full of a heartbreak. And I wonder if you've ever been in that place where your heart is breaking. You know, that, you know that feeling that, that hope has evaporated from your body? It's that experience where you get a phone call or you get the news or you find out something you didn't want to find out or you have an experience that so hurts that it feels like from the top of your head to the sole of your feet, like, like someone's poured concrete over you. And that if you breathe out, you may not be able to breathe in again. You may not be able to catch your breath. I wonder if you've ever been to the place, Mary wasn't crying, she was weeping. It's, it's, it's the ugly cry, y'all tracking with me? Yes. It's the, your eyelashes are falling off cry. <laughs> Come on, y'all look good today, by the way. 
It's the cry where your heart's breaking. It hurts. You don't need a cute meme. You don't need a nice little phrase from somebody's coffee mug to make you feel better. It's dark. Mary's at the grave of heartbreak, and if I had to guess, some of you have been or you are at the grave of heartbreak in your life. It's the grave of broken relationships. He committed to be there forever and walked out. It's the child that won't be at lunch today like you hoped they would because you haven't talked to them in months. It's the friend that betrayed you and stabbed you in the back and it's never been reconciled and you carry the pain of the grave of heartache. It's the grave of broken dreams. You thought you would be at a different place by this point in your life. You didn't think you would be this many steps backwards. It feels like one step forward, 10 steps backwards, and you thought you'd be at a different, you thought by now you'd be married, you thought by now you'd have a child, you thought by now you've tried and tried and you would conceived by this moment, you thought by now that you would be at a different place financially, you thought you'd be at a different place in your career, you didn't think you would still be dealing with these issues over and over and over again, and it is the grave of broken dreams, or maybe it's the grave of emotional weariness, you didn't think that you'd be over overwhelmed with anxiety. You didn't think that driving here today, you'd be worried about the size of the crowd and how would it affect you and would you freak out? And you didn't think today you'd be dealing with the depression that is so weighty on your life and hits you out of nowhere and you don't know how to time it and you're not sure how to deal with it. And here's the danger of the grave of heartache is what was supposed to be a place that you visited can become a place that you set up residence. And you can begin to live in the place of heartbreak and you learn to function and you learn how to operate in your life and you learn how to deal with it and you learn how to, how to get through life and you kind of make it through, but you're not living a life that is fully alive. You're not living a life that's full of joy and full of peace and, and full of passion and full of purpose and full of the goodness of God in your life. And you've just kind of thought, this is just kind of my lot in life. This is the way life goes for me, that it is what it is. I just won't be able to get through this. And you've set up residence at the grave of heartbreak. And I'm telling you, this is is not where Jesus wants you to be, and it's not where Mary wanted her to, him to be. And so Jesus shows up to Mary, and she's at the grave weeping, not expecting resurrection, not expecting anything better. And she runs into Jesus, but she thinks it's the gardener. Think about this for a moment. A man that she had followed for years, watched him teach. We get a lot of the, the 12 disciples get a lot of press. They're on all the social media posts. You know, it's Peter in all the selfies. Like, but he had hundreds and thousands of people that followed him from town to town, and Mary was one of these. And even though she knew him that well, she thought he was a gardener at first. It's because heartbreak can so blind you to see that God is right in front of you. And I would propose for some of you today that you've been wondering where God is. And I would say God has been right there all along because he is a friend to the brokenhearted because he's promised to never leave you and never forsake you. Whether you've wanted anything to do with him or not, he's wanted everything to do with you. And that he is one that is close to those who are hurting. And that the eyes of the Lord, the Bible says, are scanning the earth to and fro. That's the old King James Version I grew up on. Looking for those who he can show himself strong on your behalf. So there's good news today that if you find yourself with a broken heart, he is the God that heals broken hearts. 
And all he had to do was say her name. <laughs> Mary? Rabbi? At the mention of her name, hope flooded back in her soul. Listen to me. Look me in the eye. You're not here by accident. Jesus is calling your name today. And the pathway to a healed heart is hope. And hope isn't found in your bank account. And it's not found in the interest rate you're trying to hang on to, dear God. It's not found in another drink. It's not found in another hit. It's not found in another sexual encounter. Hope is a person, not a thing. And his name is Jesus. Come on, can somebody give him praise today? There's a second person that I want us to look at, and his name is Thomas. And if you have been around church, you may know him as... Yeah, Doubting Thomas. And the reason they're called, he's called Doubting Thomas is because of this instance in the scripture in verse 24 of chapter 20, just a little further down. It says this, now Thomas called Didymus one of the 12. So he's one of the disciples. He's, he's in the inside group. He was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So time out real quick. Jesus had appeared previous. I told you there were four appearances in the end of John. I'm going to give you three, but the fourth one was Jesus appeared to the 11. Thomas was on a smoke break and he missed it. <laughs> I don't know if he was or not. I'm just kidding. I'm just seeing if some of you are awake. And, um, and so evidently, for some reason, he missed it. He wasn't on the group text. They kicked him out for a minute. He was blowing it up too much. You know who you are, family members. Stop it in Jesus' name. Nobody wants it. And if you have an Android, get rid of it. Why do you make everything green? Why do you make it green? We all have to read. So-and-so hearted it. So-and-so hearted it. Oh, dear God, for the love of God, if you get anything out of this message, go get an iPhone. <laughs> So the other disciples told him in verse 25, all right, focus everyone, let's get back here. <laughs> so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nail was and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. This, this is verse 25. Verse 25, that, that's why he's called Doubting Thomas. One sentence, everybody. One sentence. Two commas, and we call them down. How would you like to be identified for the rest of your life by your lowest moment? A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, so they, they put him back in the group text. <laughs> and though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, because when you walk through the door, that's what you do. You tell everybody, don't freak out. Did, did you catch it? The doors were locked and now Jesus is in the room. Like, so if you ever get that power to walk through a door, make sure every time you say, hey, don't freak out, everybody. <laughs> then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side because on the cross, Jesus was stabbed in his side. And he said, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, and then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. He's talking about you. You're blessed because you, you didn't get to see him with your eyes, but you believed him. So Thomas is called Doubting Thomas because of that one moment, because of that one sentence. He's forever labeled the doubter. But I want to propose to you that maybe Thomas wasn't a doubter. Maybe he had a moment of doubt. And I want to propose that maybe your low moment shouldn't define the rest of your life. Could it be that Thomas wasn't a doubter? Could that be that wasn't his default setting, but could it be he had a moment of doubt? And the reason I'm asking the question and want you to consider it is because in John chapter 20, he has a moment of doubt, but in John chapter 11, we see a completely different side of Thomas. So you need to reverse a few chapters. Reverse, reverse. If you're laughing, repent, because you're at the club and you know that song. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Keep being holy. <laughs> Keep living the right life. We bless you in Jesus' name. <laughs> in John chapter 11, Jesus and the disciples are about to go to this town called Bethany. And evidently in Bethany, there was some level of danger because of what Thomas is about to say. But Bethany is the place where Lazarus lived and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And this would be the place, if you've heard the Bible story, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So he would go to the town of Bethany. Lazarus is dead. Jesus is heading that way. And the disciples say, let us go. Thomas says, let us go and die. Like, all right, Thomas. Like, that'll get you fired up right there, right? Like, Thomas in 11 is like, evidently there's some danger. And he's like, we're ride or die, Jesus. Like, we're rolling deep here. Like, we are ready to go die together if that's what it takes. Now, to me, that doesn't sound like a man full of fear and doubt. It sounds like a man that's full of faith. I mean, he's like, let's go die for this thing. In John chapter 11, John chapter 20, he's like, I won't believe it till I see it. And the only difference between John chapter 11 and John chapter 20, between Bethany and the grave is that Jesus has died. And I wanna to propose to you that maybe what Thomas was experiencing wasn't as much doubt that we label it, but it was disappointment. Because disappointment is the gap between what you expected and what you experienced. And many of you have disappointment in your life. You get where Thomas is because you had expectations of how life would be. You had expectations of how things would turn out. Could I even say you had expectations of what God would do in your life? And when you don't, when your expectations and your reality don't measure up, it's where disappointment sets in. And disappointment will create cynicism and Disappointment will create skepticism and disappointment will produce doubt in your life. And I wonder if this wasn't where Thomas was. I wonder if he wasn't in a place of great disappointment. I wonder if he was like, I was with you at the miracles. I was with you with the teaching. I saw Lazarus get up out of the grave. I saw the blinded eyes open. I was rolling. I had faith. I was there. I was in the intimate moments around the campfire when the thousands were not listening to you. I was in those conversations. I heard you teach and now you're dead. And you want me to believe again? I already done this one time. I already been around this block one time. And now you're dead and there's no sign you're getting up from the grave. And so the other disciples are like, no, Thomas, we saw the Lord. And everybody hates on Thomas. But Thomas just goes, no, done this before. Fool me once. Shame on me. 
I don't know if I'm believing again. I'm disappointed in how things are going down. I was expecting for us to go. I was expecting for you to set up a kingdom. This is what Israel thought. I was expecting for you to run over and take over in Israel to overthrow all the oppression that we're under. I wasn't expecting you to die and be murdered and everybody scattered and us to be embarrassed. I wasn't expecting all that. And so if you're gonna get me to believe, I gotta see some nail prints and I gotta see the wound in your side or I'm not buying any of this. This is where Thomas is, and for some of you, that's where you are. You, exp- you prayed, and they were not healed. And you prayed, and the marriage didn't survive. And you prayed, and you asked God, and you are in a place of disappointment, and it creates hard-heartedness, and you're no longer soft to the things of God, and you're no longer soft to the love of God in your life, because you're like, if I'm going to believe it again, I need a little more proof in my life. And this is where Thomas finds himself. And Jesus walks through the door, not opens the door, walks through the door. And I often love to see what Jesus doesn't do as much as what he does do. Because he doesn't walk through the door and go, Thomas, really? Really? I mean, we were together three years. Walked a lot together, ate a lot of meals together had a lot of engaging conversation together. I mean, you saw me do all these miracles. Really, Thomas? This is where we're at? Really? What do you want? I just walked through a door, Thomas. What do you need? Jesus doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that to you either. He walks through the door, says, hey, everybody calm down. Straight up to Thomas. Here you go. If that's what you need, Thomas, I'm good with that. Go ahead and touch. If that's what you need, Thomas, here you go, go ahead. Go ahead and feel if that's what, if that's what you need to believe I'm not repulsed by that. I'm not, I'm not turned away by your disappointment. I'm not repulsed by your doubt. If that's what you need, go ahead and touch my side. Go ahead and touch the hand. I'm just telling you that if that's what you need, I'm, I'm good with that. And I'm telling you today that if you're in a place of doubt or a place of skepticism or cynicism towards God, he says to you, I'm right here. I'm not turned off by you. I'm not going anywhere. If that's what you need, go ahead and touch. But here's what you've got to understand is that Jesus didn't come to meet your expectations. And he didn't come to meet Thomas's expectations. Because your expectations and Thomas's are too low. Thomas expected Jesus to just roll, let's keep this thing going. I mean, we got massive crowds, we're having a lot of fun, maybe we'll overthrow Rome, you'll set up a kingdom. Thomas's expectations were too low. Thomas didn't need a buddy, he needed a savior. He didn't need a friend or a leader, he needed a Lord. And the way that he would get a savior and a Lord had to go through a cross and through an empty tomb. And I'm just here to tell you today that God is not in the business of meeting your expectations because your faith can never live up to the level of his greatness. He is in the job of exceeding your expectations. He is the God of exceedingly abundantly and above. Anything you can ask, think, or imagine. 
And so Easter changed everything for Mary. Easter changed everything for Thomas, but there's one more person. You ready? Easter changed everything for Peter. Now, Peter's my favorite Bible character of all time because Peter's a little hood. He's half saved, half Christian, half thug. Y'all following me? He carries a knife and he cuts people's ears off. Some of you are like, I've never seen this in the Bible. You need to read your Bible. It is all in there. I'm not telling you anything that's not in the book. But here's the context you gotta understand is that Peter's a fisherman and Peter uh, first encounters Jesus as a fisherman and he comes up to him and he says, Peter, come follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. Jesus uses the metaphor that Peter would understand. As a fisherman, he uses fish as the metaphor to reach him because he always meets you at the place of your need. And then Peter follows him and he's, you know, being Peter, hothead, I love Peter. He's like, speak first, think later. I'm like, you can change the world with those kind of people. Like, Peter's running, then he's like, where are we going? <laughs> Like, give me a whole church of those. We'll go change the world. What are we doing? I don't know. It's going to be fun, though. We're going to have fun and eat good. Let's go. Um, but then comes the trial of Jesus. He's in the Sanhedrin. That's the court, the high priest. He's in the courtyard, and he's being tried, and, and he's being accused of all these things that he did not do. And the disciples have scattered, and it's confusion, and it's chaos, and they don't know what to do. And so... Um, Peter finds himself falling at a distance and this little girl, um, while Jesus is on trial, not too many feet from Peter, this little girl comes up and goes, you're, uh, you're with the Nazarene. And he goes, no, I'm not. And this is where he would deny Jesus three times. And I think the most painful part of the denial of Jesus on Peter's life was after the third time the scriptures, go read it, the scripture says that Jesus looked back at him. Can you imagine the overwhelming shame that come over Peter in that moment? Can you imagine the moment of denying Jesus and then Jesus making eye contact with you? And so I just imagine that Peter had to have this overwhelming shame and this overwhelming sense of I've blown it. <laughs> I have blown it. And I wonder if you've ever felt that. And so Peter goes back to fishing. The very thing Jesus called him out of, he goes back to. Because you will always run back to the thing you know and the place you're comfortable. And God is always calling you out of comfort into greater and greater. And the enemy will always wants to push you back to what you used to be. And that's what shame does. Shame will cause you to isolate. Shame will cause you to freeze. Shame will cause you to run back to the place that you know and the thing that you're comfortable with. And this is where Peter is, and he's out fishing. And Jesus comes up on the shore in the Sea of Galilee. If you're still with me, say amen. Comes up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he, he makes some fish, and he cooks a little meal, and then he calls out to the guys. He goes, hey, you catching anything? And he says, throw your net on the other side. And that's so reminiscent of how he first met them because he said, throw your net on the other side. And they did it again when the disciples go. I'm giving you the cliff notes. When the disciples goes, hey, it's the Lord. And Peter goes, oh my goodness. And he jumps out of the boat because that's what Peter does. He's a hothead. He's crazy. He just jumps out of the boat and he starts going to the shore and he gets to the shore and Jesus makes him some fish. And so they eat together. Chef Jesus and Peter are eating. And then Jesus has this conversation with them. And it's the most critical conversation in the life of Peter, I believe. And he says this, 
When they'd finished eating, Jesus said, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? And Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Now, if you read that, you're like, why is that so important? He's just saying, do you love me? And he's saying, you love me back. Yes, in the English, that's what it looks like. But your New Testament was written originally in the Greek language. And the Greek language has four words for love. It's more expressive and more colorful language than ours. We have a very limited language. And so what Jesus was saying to him, he said, Peter, do you agape me? The word agape for love means unconditional love. No conditions on it. It's an unlimited love. It's a, it doesn't matter your behavior. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter where you've been. It's, it's an unconditional type of love. It doesn't matter if you've hurt me, been on my side, been against me. I love you unconditionally. It's the kind of love that God has for us. And Peter responds and says, you know I phileo you. Phileo is brotherly love. That's Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's where it comes from, phileo, that Greek word. Are you following me? Yeah. So Jesus, watch this. Jesus asked him, do you agape me? Peter goes, I love you, but I don't think I'm at that level. It's not that Peter didn't love him. He just didn't think he was at that level. And then Jesus asked him again. He says, feed my lambs. Verse 16, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Again, Jesus says, do you agape me? And then Peter says, you know I phileo you. And Jesus said, okay, I'm good. Feed my sheep. And then a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. He said, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. But here's what's interesting. On the third go around, Jesus changes his word. And he says, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter says, you know I phileo you. And here's what Jesus was doing. And here's what Jesus does in your life and in my life. And he does today. Jesus was going, all right, Peter, if you're not here yet, I'm okay with that. And I'm so okay with that. I'll come down to where you are and I'll meet you at the level of where you are. And if all you got is phileo love, I'll meet you at phileo love. He's so kind and gracious that he doesn't leave you where he meets you, but he will meet you where you are. And I think Peter was going, you, weren't you there in the courtyard? Didn't you see it? Didn't you hear me? I saw you look at me. You know I don't have agape. You know I don't have unconditional because that little girl got me to deny you. I do love you, but I'm not there yet. And Jesus says, that's okay, Peter. I'll meet you there. It's okay, Thomas. If you need to touch here and touch here, I'm good with that. It's okay, Mary. You don't even recognize it's me, but I'll call your name because Easter changes everything. And it can change everything in your life today. There's no heartache so deep that hope can't break in today. And there's no doubt so great that the confidence of Jesus can't break in today. And there's no Shame so overwhelming, listen to me, that you can't come home today. Easter changes everything. The resurrection is more than some historical event in a book. Jesus is more than some great teacher that lived thousands of years ago. He is who he said he was, and he proved it by dying on a cross, being dead for three days, and then rising again on the third day. And blessed are those who believe but have not seen.
Thomas, you believe because you saw it, but blessed are those who believe but didn't get the touch. And today, Jesus is calling your name. He's inviting you into relationship. Jesus never came to start a religion. Religion will not save you. Religion is all about telling you how to get to God. You and I could never get to God. And so God, in his infinite mercy and grace and wisdom, sent his only son, Jesus, into the earth to save, as the old hymn said, a wretch like me. And there's nothing you've done that's put you outside the reach of the grace of God. There's nothing you've thought, said, experienced, choice, action that's put you outside the reach of his mercy. And the point of Easter is not for you to get your life together to come to God, it's that we could never do it. So he did what we could never do. He lived a perfect sinless life and he died the death that you and I deserved. He paid the penalty for our sin. He who knew no sin, he didn't even know it. He's not even acquainted with sin. He became sin so that you and I could experience this great exchange where we get the righteousness, the rightness of Christ on our lives. And the way that you receive that is by faith. It's a free gift. It's not by works. You can't earn it. You can't do enough good things. You can't live a good enough life. You can't be generous enough, kind enough, gracious enough, moral enough. It comes one way, by faith. By faith, and here's the reality. Everyone today, you're trusting something. Your faith is in something. You have faith. It's not a matter of whether or not you have faith. It's where you're placing it. And all I'm asking you today is to consider placing your faith in Jesus. Because your bank account doesn't deserve your faith. Your morality doesn't deserve your faith. Whatever administration you hope gets in the White House doesn't deserve your faith. Your career doesn't deserve your faith. Your friendships, your network, your social following, your, none of that deserves your faith. Jesus alone deserves your faith. And today, he is the gardener in the garden. He is the Savior walking through the wall. He is the chef on the shore side doing everything he can to reach you. So in just a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond and to receive the gift of his forgiveness, of his grace in your life. And so I'll ask everyone to bow your head and close your eyes with me. At every location in the foyer, I ask that no one make a move, please. No movement in the overflow rooms, no movement in our campuses. This is a holy moment. The Spirit of God is here and is speaking to people right now. There are people that are making eternal decisions in this moment. Heaven and hell are weighing in the balance right now. And I pray that you'll do in this moment what you'll be glad you did the day you stand before God. The Bible says that we've all sinned and we've come up short. It's not a condemning statement, it's the reality of all humanity. And it says the wages or the payment or the penalty of our sin is death. That means eternal separation, not just a physical death, it's an eternal death. It's eternal separation from God, but the gift of God is eternal life and it comes through Jesus alone. There's one way to heaven, 
And that's through Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. No woman comes to the Father except through Jesus. It's Jesus alone. It's not my words. It's his words. And he has the authority to say that because he got up out of the grave. And the way we receive that free gift is by faith. And how you express your faith is through prayer. The Bible says, if you'll confess with your mouth, I'm gonna give you an opportunity, I'm gonna lead you in a prayer in a moment to confess with your mouth. And if you'll believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, today you'll be saved, today your sins will be forgiven, you'll have a brand new beginning. Jesus, before we do that, I wanna know who I'm praying with, we're not gonna embarrass you, I promise you no one's gonna point you out or come to you. And with no one looking around, when I count to three, if that's you, say, Pastor, that's me today, I need a new start. I need a change in my life. I need a new beginning today. I wanna to accept this free gift of Jesus. If that's you today, maybe you're here and you would take the label of a Christian, but you know in your heart you're far from God. Today's the time to come home. This is your day. This is why God has you here on this Easter Sunday. When I count to three, you shoot your hand up high enough, long enough for me or your campus pastor to see we're the only one looking. And then we're gonna to pray together. On the count of three, this is your moment, don't miss it. God is speaking to you, you respond today, you'll be glad you did on three. One, two, three, you shoot it up high. God bless you, I see you all over the room. All over the room, you can put them down. Church, let's pray this out loud together for the benefit of those who just slipped up their hand. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. I believe you died for me. I believe God raised you from the dead. Today I make you my Lord and Savior. Thank you for a brand new beginning. In Jesus' name. And everybody said a big amen. Amen. Come on, let's celebrate those who made that decision. Thanks for joining us for today's message. Feel free to rate, review, and share with a friend. If you'd like to find out how you can get involved or partner with us financially, visit lifepoint.org or download the LifePoint app. Thank you for your generosity. We can do so much more together than we ever could apart. See you soon.